You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Chris Cook, Alan Buck here, Game Day IQ at thegrillingtruth.com, the Thursday evening tradition. Alan Buck, say hello to everybody this fine evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is a great place to be. You're going to just sit tight. You're going to have your Game Day IQ raised a few points. I know mine was when I was just researching the show, and I do <laughs> this kind of thing all the time. So if I've run across some new things, hopefully it will be for you too, you all too. And uh I always, I always delight when I can raise Mr. Cook's game day IQ a point or two. And, uh, oh, we'll that's see. been the goal of late. That's been the goal of late. I know that my the past couple shows has really gone up. I mean, I'm, I'm almost a sports genius like you. <laughs> well, it has because the nature of the show. We have not had as many current events to go over, and so I've just been digging through. Uh, uh, Basically, this date in history, uh, focusing mainly on birth dates and stuff. But I'll tell you what, there have been an awful lot of athlete, athletic superstars that have not made the cut because we got high standards on this show. So if we're going to talk about it, they've, they've had to accomplish some really high things. But, um, hey, can we start well, out with kick- somebody on the pedestal? Oh, what? Go yeah, ahead. I was going to say, kick us off on a positive note because there's been enough negative to go around the past seven it, days, it and it's time to it have, have some positive stuff. Yeah, folks, just before Eric, Chris, and I were talking about, we've each lost um, people close to us this week. Uh, I lost one of my ball players. His funeral was today, and I'm talking he was 30 years old, uh, and Chris lost somebody. Anyway, so, yeah, we're going to start on something positive, and then we'll go up from there. How's that? You know, we actually you know lost the we, listener of this show, to be, uh, <laughs> to be Oh, my. So our listenership went down a person. <laughs> Okay, so whoever's out there listening, recruit somebody else to replace that person. Um, you know how we, we it, it's kind of jokingly, but you know how we refer to football players and we make a joke about them not being rocket scientists? Well, here's a player mm-hmm. we're putting on the pedestal this week because he appears to be just the kind of athlete that we like to celebrate here on Game Day IQ. Man's name is Joshua Dobbs. He's a quarterback for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And he had a 4.0 GPA while studying aerospace engineering at the University of Tennessee. The university presented him with the 2017 Torchbearer Award, which is the highest honor for an undergraduate student, which recognizes accomplishments in the community and academics. So um, Dobbs, who also is a rocket scientist, completed a program with NASA this offseason where he worked with them for a month as an aerospace engineer as part of the National Football League Players Association externship. 
This is the kind of person we like to celebrate here on Game Day IQ. And so Joshua Dobbs, you're on the pedestal this week. And uh, so just remember that when you see him out there uh, with the Jacksonville Jaguars, I don't know how he'll do physically, but mentally he'll be ahead of everybody else on the field. So, and there we have it. The, uh, yeah, the, what do you uh, think about him being at the SpaceX launch uh, of the uh, Dragon capsule over the weekend? Uh, yeah, that I that's pretty good. Um, I I didn't get to see it, but I but fortunately they had good weather when they pulled. You pulled. missed America's return to low Earth orbit, low Earth orbit for the first time in I over did. nine years. I, I was working. Uh huh. I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, I, I, that's the thing. When you work retail, when uh, you know part time retail, no telling when your shift. I don't even know what day. One one day I went. And I told my boss. I said I thought this was Sunday, and he goes, Nope, it's Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> but just the way I mean, the days go. Think about how, as an American taxpayer here, Alan Buck, what did you think about the decision nine years ago to leave a multi-billion-dollar American asset in a low-Earth orbit without the ability for uh, us to get there from America and having to go via Russia at fifty million a seat? Um, did, just wanted to know your take on that here on Game Day at you. Well, since I am spoiled because I've always lived in the United States of America, which is the leader worldwide in anything uh, cutting edge. And that was one where, as you said, we left ourselves in the hands of another country. Um, I didn't like it. Um, you know, I would have liked to have been around the table when that was discussed because I don't think there's a budget number that that can really <laughs> justify well, yeah. what they did. And Duncan, oh, Duncan yeah. agrees. He, he agreed here. There you go. There you go. We got Duncan's agreement and approval, man. We're on it. We are when the it. dog's barking, I think he does pay attention to the show because, you know, he's 11 years old. He remembers the last time we launched from America. And, you know, growing up, space travel, you know, I always thought by the time we'd hit 2020, you and I'd be able to go to the moon, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I fully believe that. And I think that we missed out by not going back to the moon sooner than we have. And I'm, I'm glad to see with the Orion program that NASA's having that that is the goal, to go to the moon and eventually to Mars, I think that there is, you know, we need to do that by any means necessary sometime in our lifetime. Absolutely, yeah. There's a, yeah, there's a lot, of, lot of good that can be had from us dominating up there, just like we do that. But I think it's great to have American ingenuity, American contractor, you know, basically builds the thing, has the spaceship, you know, in partnership with NASA, it's a private partner, a private public partnership, and I think that they're really doing some things to to diversify who is involved in space in America. And I think it's a good first step um, for private industry to make their way into the cosmos. Yep, you're right. Yeah, and you you said it right. The, the good first step because it certainly won't be the last step. And, I mean, uh, there's been a partnership you know. for launching satellites for years and, you know, supply lines and stuff to the International Space Station, mm-hmm. but to actually put mm-hmm. butts in the seats and send them up there, you and I both know that gets a double gold star. It's not just a normal routine thing. And to be able mm-hmm. to do it with certainty and to have the, the Dragon rocket return like it did and stick its landing on its drone ship, I mean, I have to admit, I was working too Saturday, but thank God, I had a lull in the action, was able to watch the launch live, and when I saw the story that you referenced on the Jacksonville quarterback, I was like, this is going to be on Game Day IQ this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that for sure is. 
Hey, here's something else, and and I I I was this was contributed by a friend of the show and and often contributor Tom Buck. He he sent me, and I I I had to, I looked it up. I didn't take his word for it. I looked it up on the computer and verified it. And so this is as of March 14, 2017. And I, I'll ask it in the form of a question just to get people thinking. And Chris, you can think about. It, but I'm not going to leave this one hanging out there because it, it took me three or four days of numerous guesses. When I, before, I, before I finally hit it. But what college football team, um, this is Division One, has qualified for a bowl game, a football bowl game, and had its men's basketball team earn an invitation to the NCAA tournament for the most consecutive years? Well, and, I, know, I know what Div One football program and basketball program it is not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it it you're um, all the Yes, and and the but the record is 15 straight years. At 15, that's the longest streak in NCAA history. The next longest belongs to Texas, which qualified for a bowl in the NCAA tournament in 12 straight seasons from 19 the 88 excuse me 1998-99 through 2009 and 10. So that's can I have a can I have a can I have sure. a little a little tidbit? Is is it a Big Ten school? It does happen to be, and that's strictly coincidental. Because when Tom asks me stuff like that, he it could be anywhere. And I started out with SEC schools, but uh, I even guessed uh, uh, Virginia Tech. Uh, you know, thinking it because uh, it's and and uh, but anyway, to give you a sense of the magnitude of that accomplishment, consider this currently. This is what's going on currently. The next longest active streak is four years, held by North Carolina and Baylor, and uh, and, that, and that I think that actually was as of March 2017. That's where I got this information. So, the well, if school, I was to guess, the first two that come to mind, can I guess or? Sure, go ahead. I would have to lean Michigan or Ohio State. Um, I, you know. Each of those had a, a week. I did guess Michigan was one of mine that I threw out there, but Ohio State had a few, a couple of lean basketball times that they didn't make it. So the next tier in the Big Ten, and I guessed two of them that day. I guessed University of Wisconsin or Michigan State, and it is yeah, that's Wisconsin. where I go next. Yep. Wow, I yep. would have never thought it was Wisconsin. Yeah, that's uh, and I I went through you know numerous guesses. Uh, uh, the only thing, and I I did ask. I said I was. I said my logic was, it's probably not somebody that competes for the number for number one in either sport, but it's probably somebody that's you know good and solid. That's why I said like Vitek, you know, <laughs> they've got good basketball and good football. They just aren't, you know, uh, and they fly under the radar somewhat. But that was obviously a. Uh, um, I was laughed at for that guess. So, <clears throat> okay. But anyway, Wisconsin, 15 years from two, uh, every year since the start of the 2002 season through 2017. And then I looked to see if, since this article was written then, did did either did both school did both teams make it the following year, and they did not. So, so that is the end of that streak. But that's pretty random cool. Wisconsin, random Wisconsin fact here on Game Day IQ. Do you know how many bars there are in the state that has 5.7 million who called home? Oh God, that, I don't know, but I do. <laughs> how many? 
3,043 bars. That's one bar for every 1,877 Wisconsinites. you got to love that. And, and you figure there would be some percentage would be teetotalers. Oh, and some are, are children. And they're still not the highest bar per capita uh, state out there. Do you have any idea who that honor goes to? Um, I would say uh, Montana. Close, North Dakota. Oh, God, I almost said North Dakota, and I thought, nope, let's go to a little bit less popular. Let's go to Montana. Um, but do you know, well, this will, this will bring us back home, and I think I've mentioned this to you before. When I was of age, you know, just had gotten of age, uh, you could not get a liquor, a liquor license in the city of Evansville because they were all, they were all bought up. I mean, per capita, there you had to, you know, and the only way you could get one would be to buy it from somebody else, buy an existing license. It couldn't get any new ones. Now, that that's another reason why. Well, there are several reasons why Evansville, Indiana, where Chris and I are from, uh, is chosen a lot of times to be uh, uh, sample um, uh, test markets, test markets for new products. First of all, because we're middle America, you know, we're average every, you know, every, all over the place. But uh, Pringles in the late 60s, um, Evansville was chosen to test market Pringles, partly because we were average, but partly because we drink an extraordinary amount of beer per capita. And Pringles, well, Montana, you know, Montana comes in second with one bar for every 1,658 state residents. Well, there you go. I wouldn't far off. And I, I, I thought of North Dakota first, but I went Montana. So, hey, I had the top two right there. But, um, hey, uh, what would a show around Memorial Day weekend be without some Indianapolis 500 information? And I've got – I ran across a plethora of good information. We're going to save that for when the race is going to be run this year in August. But we, we can't let, you know, last weekend go by um, or, you know, Memorial Day weekend go by without a little bit. Um here are just a couple of things that likely will raise your game day IQ. During the early days of the Indy 500, nearly all the cars were two-seaters, and they included the driver and an onboard, quote-unquote, riding mechanic. Can you see me doing the air quotes? A riding mechanic. <laughs> while, the, while the wheelman negotiated the track's treacherous turns, the mechanic monitored gauges, tire wear, made on-the-fly repairs, and served as the traffic spotter. They sometimes even, get this, sometimes they even massaged the driver's aching arms and neck as the race wore on. Because, you know, back then, you're talking about a six-hour affair. Um, riding, riding, riding mechanics were mandatory at the Indy 500 from 1912 to 1922, and from 1930 to 1937, the teams later abandoned the two cars, two-man cars after World War II to cut down on weight and improve aerodynamics. Well, on May 30, 1911, Ray Haroon, he won the first Indianapolis 500 with an average race speed of 74 miles an hour. He was an engineer for Indianapolis-based Marmon Motor Car Company, M-A-R-M-O-N, he helped build the Marmon Wasp that catapulted him to victory. And according to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, one key feature of the Wasp that Haroon was given credit for is the development of the rearview mirror, a device he successfully used in his Indianapolis win that eliminated the need for a riding mechanic and spotter. 
So he had an advantage in that 1911 race, and remember, the rule requiring it didn't come till 1912. So uh, Ray Haroon, with his invention of the rearview mirror, um, that gave him big advantage to winning the race. Now, here's something else. Um, and this will be uh, just a couple more things on the on the Indy 500 race. On May 31st, 1919, the Indy 500 race resumed after Indianapolis Motor Speedway owners canceled it in late March 1917 when the United States teetered on the verge of World War I. Secretary and Treasurer James Allison explained the decision. Here's a, here's a quote from him. Racing means taking away from the government the services of skilled mechanics whose services can be used by the government to better advantage in time of war than by a Speedway Corporation as a means of entertainment, end quote. Now, here's what they did. The Indianapolis Motor Speedway was offered to the government to be used as an aviation field or for any other purpose that might be needed during the war. And it did serve as a repair depot for planes uh, where mechanics fixed 313 planes and 350 engines. So I did not know the Indianapolis 500 uh, racetrack had such a prominent role in World War One. But there you have it. Yeah. And uh, now, and here's something else. And God, here's this nasty thing that's been looming over our heads this week. But this is a little bit of history. On May 27th, excuse me, on May 29th, 1977. A.J. Foyt became the first four-time Indianapolis 500 winner, and Janet Guthrie became the first woman to start in the race, although she only ran 27 laps before being put out of the race with technical difficulties. Here's the important part. Upon victory, here's the part you know, nobody knows. Upon victory, Foyt took Speedway owner Tony Holman on his ceremonial lap, the last time Holman would experience the 500 race before his death later that year. So Foyt took him on his last voyage around the track, and uh, that was a pretty, I'm sure it was very, very special and uh, touching for Tony Holman, especially, you know, on Foyt's fourth victory. That was, he was the first four-time winner, and uh, Holman was there for all of them. So, um, But speaking of four-time winners, May 29, 1939, Al Unser was born winner of the Indianapolis 500 four times in 1970, 71, 78, and 87. He's the second of three men to do that behind, you just heard, A.J. Foyt and also Rick Mears. Unser is the only man to have a brother and a son who have also won the race. So there you go. Um, for those who are a bit younger, pay attention to this one. 1943, May 30th, Gail Sayers was born. He is one of the greatest running backs in NFL history. He was elected the NFL Hall of Fame in 1977 at the age of 34, the youngest ever so inducted. His career was cut short due to injuries. He played for seven seasons, but only five were real productive ones due to those injuries. And folks, he was very quick, fast, and elusive. And if you want to have some fun, look up some film of Gail Sayers for a real treat and watching a running back at football's highest level. I, and I can't think, I can't think of, I guess maybe Barry Sanders' style might have been similar to Gail Sayers. It, it, it was, as I said, he was, he was very fast, but he was quick, 
and you know when you're in among the big uglies and stuff you got to be elusive too and he he just he just was and so for the young folks gail sayers s-a-y-e-r-s terrific terrific uh, now here's something else and i did not find this the rest of the story that i was looking for but uh also uh, one day later may 31st 1943 joe willie namath NFL Hall of Fame, nineteen eighty-five; the Super Bowl MVP, nineteen sixty-nine; guaranteed victory over the heavily favored Don Shula-coached Baltimore Colts. But then he backed it up with a sixteen to seven victory. But listen to this. And I guarantee you do not know this, Mister Cook. This you'll, you'll, okay. you'll love this from Joe Willie. Upon graduation from high school in nineteen sixty-one. He received offers from several Major League Baseball teams, including the Yankees, Indians, Reds, Pirates, and Phillies. But, as we all know, football prevailed. Namath told interviewers that he wanted to sign with the Pirates and play baseball like his idol, Roberto Clemente. But he elected to play football because his mother wanted him to get a college education. Well, the St. Louis Cardinals selected... I had no idea he was a baseball player. And you wonder, how would things have been different? Because he still had that golden arm... And maybe those knees wouldn't have gotten beat up so badly. But, uh, you know, that, of course, would be speculation. But the Cardinals, St. Louis Cardinals selected Namath 12th overall in the NFL draft, while the Jets selected him with the first overall pick in the AFL draft. Remember, that was uh, uh, the first few years the AFL and the NFL were separate leagues. Uh, When meeting with executives of the Cardinals, Namath's salary request was $200,000 and a new Lincoln Continental. And while, in, while initially appalled at Namath's request, the Cardinals told Namath they would agree to his request, but only if he would sign before the Orange Bowl, which would have made Namath ineligible to play in that game. So he obviously did not do that because he, he, they were, Alabama was undefeated. They played in the Orange Bowl and won the national title. But the day after the Orange Bowl, Namath elected to sign with the Jets which were under the direction of owner Sonny Werblin. He signed for a salary of $427,000 over three years, which was a pro football record at that time. And here is something else that you don't know. Court, Chris, what was his nickname? Uh, oh, the goat? I know. Uh, <laughs> Broad, Broadway Joe. Broadway Joe. Uh, oh, yeah. Offensive tackle Sherman Plunkett came up with the nickname Broadway Joe in 1965 following Namath's appearance on the cover of Sports Illustrated in July. So I never knew where Broadway Joe came from. I just thought it came because he was he was a high-profile, fancy-type uh, person, you know, fancy cars, fancy – oh, he wore mink coats, uh, and he was always dating the uh, – you know, prettiest fashion models and stuff like that. So I thought that's where it came from. But Sherman Plunkett, offensive tackle. And if an offensive tackle gives you a nickname and you're the quarterback, you say, yes, sir. <laughs> um, now, here's one. Here's one that I, nobody will know. And it's, 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 such, it's so trivial that it's not really on the radar. But just out of curiosity, who was the Jets quarterback with whom Namus split time during the first half of his rookie season? Um, and they were – Jets were very mediocre – well, that's a stretch. They weren't even mediocre with them splitting time. So the second half of his fresh, of his rookie season, they just went with Namath, and he I think took him on a like a uh, 
four and two record the last part of the season or six and two something like that. But anyway, he were hit the the starting quarterback when he got there was University of Illinois graduate Mike Taliaferro. I do I do remember the name, but I didn't uh, I couldn't told you I wouldn't have made it I wouldn't have gotten it right on a multiple choice question, but I did I did remember his name. But uh, several little uh, t- see we haven't even gotten into the show yet where our game day IQ is already going up. Uh, here is another one, and then I'm going to get to a clarification. You know, we always talk about making sure we get everything right here. Um, I got something that maybe we'll, we'll, we'll attach an asterisk to because I was technically correct, but uh, a little bit, a little bit different. You'll get that here in a second. But here's another birthday, and here's something that people. This will, it'll make you tilt your head and say, "Huh." June the second, nineteen o four. Johnny Weissmuller passed away in nineteen eighty four. Most of you remember him. Are you old enough to remember him? No. Okay. Mm-mm. He he. Most people remember him as playing Tarzan in movies and TV during the 1930s and 40s, and there was a TV show Tarzan that he starred in. He did his own Tarzan yell, and it still is used today sometimes in shows. What you probably didn't know about him is that he was one of the world's fastest swimmers and won five Olympic gold medals for swimming, and a bronze medal for water polo. That swimming prowess might never have been had it not been for this. At age nine, young John Weissmuller contracted polio. At the suggestion of his doctor, he took up swimming to help battle the disease. After the family moved from western Pennsylvania to Chicago, he continued swimming and eventually earned a spot on the YMCA swim team. He was the first to break the one-minute barrier for the 100-meter freestyle and the first to swim 440-yard freestyle in under five minutes. He's the Roger Bannister of the, of the Olympic pool, basically. He won 52 U.S. national championships, set more than 50 world records spread over both the freestyle and the backstroke, and he was purportedly undefeated in official competition for the entirety of his competitive career. And that, my friends, is more than you ever dreamed you'd know about Johnny Weissmuller. But uh, that's Man, pretty. But we're making sports geniuses out there left and right if they listen to the show this week. Yeah, yeah. And hey, you never know when you'll be uh, sitting at your favorite watering hole, and there'll be a sports trivia contest breakout. And uh, most of those are much easier than when I used to flat out ask the questions on this show because they give you multiple choice and things like that. I, I usually didn't. I tried to say, hey, you're either going to know it or you're not. But having heard some of this, folks, you'll be able to get multiple choice ones right. Um, hey, a couple weeks well, ago. Well, odds are if you're, if, you're, okay. if you're in Montana, North Dakota, or uh, Wisconsin, you're probably listening to this show from a watering hole. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And, uh, hey, and they've already been mentioned prominently today. And uh, I'm glad of it. Um, a couple of weeks ago, as you all probably remember, I gave credit to Joe Lewis for breaking the color barrier in the PGA and professional golf with a sponsor's exemption for a tournament. Um, technically, that is correct, but he was not a full-time player. So here <clears throat> is the correction, um, or not a really correction, just a clarification. As we celebrate the June 2, 1922 birth date of 
Charlie Sifford. And we'll put Charlie in that category with of the uh, ones that came before. Because Charlie Sifford, who passed away in 2015, he had a good run at it, 93 years. He was the first African-American golfer to play on the U.S. PGA Tour. He joined the PGA Tour in 1961, and he won two events. And in 1975, he won the PGA Seniors Championship. Well, Sifford was inducted into the Golfing Hall of Fame in 2004, and uh, Lee, Trevino, Lee Trevino referred to Sifford as the Jackie Robinson of golf, which everybody can figure out why now. Tiger Woods credited Sifford with paving the way for Woods' career because uh, Sifford did have to undergo a lot of the negative uh, you know, uh, reaction from people. You know, this was back in the early 60s, and uh, he was the first black man in, in the all-white sport. So he broke the ice, broke the barrier, and, uh, you know, without him, we may not have had Tiger Woods at such a high level. So that's why we're adding Charlie Sifford to our ongoing collection. Uh, I think most Tiger Woods before. comes from Earl Woods. <laughs> well, yeah, beating him over the head. But but the mental part of the game, which and that's what Earl did uh, do a good job with Tiger on. But but uh, he, Tiger didn't have nearly the uh, uh, racism that was thrown at Charlie Sifford. And uh, and you know somebody like that, that's somebody that's inspirational for for Tiger Woods to look up to. Um, but um, here's um, <clears throat> for for our soccer soccer fans. We don't want to we don't want to leave soccer out. Uh, also, June second, nineteen eighty, Abby Wambach, American soccer player who holds the world record for international goals. Did you know that an American woman holds the world record for international goals? I did mm-hmm. not. I had no idea. So that's why she's included. I did not know that. Yep. And uh now my God, here we go again. I'm sorry, this we're going down, you know. Wesley Sissel Unsold passed away on June the June the second, just a couple days ago. He was truly a big ugly in the world of basketball. At six foot seven, he was an undersized center even during his playing career from nineteen sixty eight to nineteen eighty one. Uh his entire career was spent with the Washington Bullets having led the, led them to an NBA championship in 1978. I referred to, his, to him as a big ugly for his 6-foot-7-inch, 245-pound physique. He wasn't what you'd call a high flyer, but he earned his money by being physically tough in the paint. He also had the strength to throw two-handed overhead pass on a rope from underneath the basket to half court over at the sideline. That was That's no easy feat for us mere mortals. But that's how the Bullets got their fast break started because in the middle of the basketball floor, there's too much traffic. You, he, you know, he wouldn't take that ball from under the basket and throw it straight up the court. He would hit his outlet on the sideline, and then this, from the sideline, they'd put it back to the middle of the court. So you're, Chris has heard me talk about all the time, diagonal passing. And that's what he did. But he was and, – and if you – it might not. Chris is a big, strong man. Felt people out there may not be familiar, but I'm going to challenge him. If you're next time you're at a have basketball, take it over your head and try throwing a two-handed overhead pass. Just just throw one good and hard, and you know see how accurate and how far. It'll chances are it's going to float up in the air. It might bounce down on the ground. Who knows? But it's not an easy thing to do, and he was a master at it. 
So it's easier to talk to about up in the booth. I tell you, I enjoy talking about it more than doing on a basketball. Well, true. That well put, Chris. That that is well said because uh, he he's he was he's built for football, and I'm too old. So the two of us, we, we can analyze, but probably can't do. But now, what here's another thing. He went to Louisville, didn't he? He went to Louisville. For oh. College. Absolutely, he did. He was born. He was from Louisville, and he was the he was the first black player recruited by Adolph Rupp at the University of Kentucky. Integration leaders in Louisville encouraged him to attend UK because it would be good for race relations in the SEC and across the nation. But Unsel chose the University of Louisville. Now, when he graduated. He was chosen second in the 1968 NBA draft behind – you're not old enough to know this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to float this question to my brother, and he'll, he'll get it, and he'll nail it in a heartbeat. Um, 1968, there was a big man from Houston, not the Rockets, the Houston Cougars. Elvin Hayes, the Big E, was the number one draft choice that year. Uh, and he was he was tremendous talent, but uh, uh, the Washington Bullets they got their money's worth for the entire career of Wesley Unsell. Uh, again, Johnny Majors this week passed away on the third of June, 2020. He played college football at the University of Tennessee and was runner-up in the Heisman Trophy voting in 1956 to a man who had played football in the Wrights Bowl. That tells you who it was because we talked about it before. Paul Horning. Exactly. So Johnny Majors, I had no idea Johnny Majors was that good of a halfback, but he was. He was a longtime coach at, at University of Tennessee, but he won his only national title in 1976 while coaching for the University of Pittsburgh. There's another thing that I bet nobody, nobody remembers him coaching for those few years at the University of Pittsburgh, and certainly nobody would say, you know his university of ten his his uh national title was pittsburgh so there you go um let's get back to birthday june third nineteen twenty two Harold Buck passed away in two thousand ten that was my dad he was and as a high school principal he was often referred to as a big athletic supporter so there you go. <laughs> Since I'm one of the co-hosts of the show, I get to bring it up. So hats off to dear old dad. Um, here's another one, and I did not realize this. June, 19, June 3rd, 1986, Rafael Nadal. He is a Spanish tennis player. I know he's, he was a great one. He won a lot of titles. I didn't know he won 19 Grand, Grand Slam titles, including 12 French Opens. I had no idea. But uh, anyway, those are – so there you have some history uh, done from, from baseball uh, – or from – excuse me, from – I just read my next story there. From, the history from, uh, from birth dates, that's, that's where I pull some of those things out. But uh, got uh, oh, a couple more things. Uh, did you – oh, we, we talked about the Fort Wayne Daisies last week, didn't we? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. But uh, um, did you have any uh, 
any good good stories that you had? I know you sent me a couple from the Indy 500. I'm sorry, I was just so excited. I, anything Indy 500, I jump all over because uh, you know well, I, I was going to talk a little them. bit about that, but you know I just want everybody to stay safe out there and be smart. I know there's a lot of turmoil in society right now, and uh, mm-hmm. you know we're going to have a full moon this weekend, Alan. But really, I noticed it was awfully mm-hmm. bright last night, and uh, um, yeah, okay. Well, I, uh, I based on I'm some of the calls Saturday. I've been receiving at work, I can always tell when the full moon is upon us. You can. Hey, I saw something interesting this week from a frequent guest on the show, um, our friend from Ohio State, the photographer, um, Kevin May or Ken May. Ken May, Kenneth May. Thank you. Yeah, um, Kenneth May had he posted on social media a picture of the International Space Station crossing our sky. And the moon is quite bright, but it's not nearly full because it was the picture was a couple days ago. But you can clearly see, like you'll see them in this picture, the moon's off to the right, and on the left there's a very bright object. And, uh, you know, there's there are no stars visible in it, or, or very, maybe very, very faint. But uh, I don't know if it's still going to be visible at night, but uh, Kenneth May, you know, fantastic photographer for the the Ohio State University football and basketball programs for the last, what, 10 or so years, something like that, roughly. Mm -hmm. Um, He got a really nice shot of the International Space Station flying overhead. So there we go. That, I know, had not much to do with sports, but, hey, it's pretty cool when that something like that Trend of the show. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, I, I ran across something else. Another friend of, friend of the show, Kevin Worthwine, who authored a book about the history of baseball in Evansville, Indiana, which Evansville, Indiana, for those of you who don't know, is home of the third oldest baseball park in professional baseball. Uh, it's third behind uh, Fenway Park and Wrigley Field. And it's a minor league park, but it's been in continuous service, and uh, it's the third oldest. Anyway... Kevin Worthwine, and I, I love the preface in his book. He talked about he was looking at doing a doing a a, a book on on the history of baseball and and from what he could remember and what he'd heard about, you know, from the um, all the the twenties and, and so on and on forward. And as he got looking into it, um, he ran. Oh, and he, he said he he was going to spend you know maybe a chapter on everything from the eighteen hundreds. And he said when he got into it, there was so much there um, that he wound up with a whole book starting, you know, instead of just uh, little bits and pieces. It was, uh, um, it was a huge, huge part of the book. So it, it took him, you know, numerous chapters on the 1800s. And uh, I just ran across it the other day at Costco here in Evansville and uh, sent him a note and told him that uh, that it was it's it's there. It's pretty cool seeing that I recommend it to people all the time. They say, oh, have you read it? And I said, I interviewed the guy. Um, you know, he tells great stories. So anyway, that's uh, uh, kind of neat when you see something like that. Um, and it's in, it's in several others. I think it's in Barnes & Noble and some others. Just here, I'm sure, on a regional, regional basis. It's not all over the place in Costco, but it sure is in Evansville and hopefully up in – where he moved to now up in Zionsville or Indianapolis. So anyway, um, 
I have, Chris, I have one more story. Um, okay, we've got time. It's story time with Uncle Buck, but this is a short one. <laughs> but but you're going to like it. Um, you are you, Everybody's going to enjoy it. Every baseball fan is familiar with a line from the poem that I'm about to read. But few know of its origin or the story behind it. Well, never fear. That's why Game Day IQ is here. Uh, the following, <laughs> pardon me. The, the following poem was written by Franklin Pierce Adams. You wonder who he was named after, huh? <clears throat> um, he was. It was from the point of view of a New York Giants baseball fan watching the very talented and efficient Chicago Cubs infield. Adams wrote the poem in 1910. It was first published on July 12, 1910 in the New York Evening Mail. I assume that was a newspaper. It's, it's in quotation marks. And it was under, under the title, quote, that double play again, end quote. But the real title of the piece is Baseball's Sad Lexicon. Now, understand, by Franklin Pierce Adams, and it's from the viewpoint of a New York Giants fan watching the very talented and efficient Chicago Cubs infield. And here's the poem. These are the saddest of possible words, tinker to Evers to chance. Trio of bear cubs and fleeter than birds, tinker and Evers and chance. Ruthlessly pricking our gonfalon bubble, making a giant hit into a double, words that are heavy with nothing but trouble, tinkers to Evers to chance. I just think that's cool as heck because we've all heard it and that's where it came from. A bonus game day IQ point, a gonfalon, G-O-N-F-A-L-O-N. This is something Chris Cook might know off top of his head. I'm not putting you on the spot, but if you know it, throw it out there. No, I do not. No, I do not. Okay, it is, a, it is a pennant or a flag, and in this case referring to the National League pennant. And, uh, and when he says making a giant hit into a double, he doesn't mean a double off the wall. He means a double play. But it had to rhyme with bubble and trouble, so you couldn't put play on the end of it. But anyway, I think that's a cool as heck poem. And that's where we get the Tinker Davers chance. So did you know that it came from a poem? No, I, I did I, not. I thought, I, I thought it just came from, you know, the news media back in the day. But uh, so there we go. We have we have uh, added some literary literary uh, uh, points for our, for our listeners out there. Well, I think that we've uh, raised everybody's game day IQ enough for today. Yeah, I mean, it was, this is pretty intense, and and folks, I sometimes I'm sorry, Chris, I didn't let you even talk hardly today, but I get fired up when I get into the as I call it the dusty end of the library. A uh, lot of good stuff, and it, you don't know how hard it was for me to not bring all the Indy 500 stuff that I ran across. But we're going to save that for uh, uh, when's, when's it going to be? It's in August, isn't it? Or, or <clears throat> mid-July mid or mid-August? Is it September? Okay. I think it's September. I thought it was before the, uh, the uh, Kentucky Derby, which Derby is <clears throat> the first week. I, I don't know. I can't, I'm sorry, folks, I cannot remember. But that's what we're going to have. And there, and there is a bunch of really good – Gee, I didn't know that Indianapolis 500 stuff, and I know a lot about it just from having gone for uh, you know 40 years. But uh, there's a lot of really good stuff. So anyway, 
Chris, if you don't have anything, I am uh, about out of gas, and I can watch the last few minutes of soccer practice, which, by the way, might as well say, my neighbor is the is a, a former NCAA Division One soccer player. At one time, he was the he had played the most minutes in NCAA Division One soccer. He is now number two, after uh, I think this gentleman from Wake Forest passed him with uh, in the tournament. Had a couple of those marathon. You know how soccer games can kind of go marathon games at times, and he had a couple of those. Mm-hmm. And so Stevie McCullough is number two, um, and he he lost his aunt, uh, uh, an aunt this week. Um, that was my friend's sister. So uh, anyway, I'm watching him teach. He's he's giving back. He's teaching uh, uh, several groups, different age groups, uh, how to play soccer, and and they've got a half of a soccer field laid out on his property just for his for his sons, and now he's using it to teach. So uh, put put old Stevie on a pedestal for giving back to the uh, to the community. And by the way, folks, it's a nice uh, cool rain coming down right now, so they're they're just mud from head to toe and having a ball. <laughs> <laughs> so with that. I will pass it back to Chris, and I'm going to say good night to all good sports. For Alan Buck, I'm Chris Cook. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Game Day IQ at thegrillingtruth.com. can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Don't let impaired driving ruin your holiday. Always have a plan for a sober ride. DC police are arresting drunk and drug drivers. Drive sober or get pulled over. Message from the District Department of Transportation and Metropolitan Police Department.